lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We gather for ordered worship to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to illumine the, the imagination by the beauty of God, to warm the heart by the love of God, to devote the will to the purposes of God. The liturgy, music, and homily are offered for our gathered congregation here in Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of ministry in our midst, and as the Spirit moves, your presence with us on Sunday. This Sunday, as we remember Martin Luther, may we also remember that we are saved by grace through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
pray. Almighty and everlasting God, increase in us the gifts of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain what you promise. Make us love what you command. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Well, beloved, as is our weekly practice, we pause for a moment in prayer, silent individual prayer of confession, as our choir sings the traditional Kyrie, Lord have mercy. As we pray, may we remember there is more mercy in God than there is sin in us. There is more mercy in God than there is sin in us. Let us pray. Hear the announcement of good news. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children, so deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Please join me in praying responsively verses from Psalm 90 with the antiphon. have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn us back to dust and say, turn back, you mortals. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past or like a watch in the night. You sweep them away. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Turn, O Lord, how long? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us and as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be manifest to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and prosper for us the work of our hands. Oh, prosper the work of our hands. And now, beloved, rise up in body as you are able, but certainly in heart, for the singing of the Gloria Deo, the reading of the gospel, and the singing of our hymn.
Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 46. Glory to you, O Lord. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. Who do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the spirit calls him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David does, thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. seated. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Our siblings at the Basse Institute in Switzerland focus weekly on Bible, church, and world, while we do the same here at Marsh Chapel as lenses upon the love of neighbor. With our theme today, we take them in reverse order, world, church, Bible. Religion on campus today is blessed with sociological, ecclesiological, and theological opportunities on a grand scale. To all three of these blessings, we shall return during the rest of the year for more detailed attention. Today's sermon is meant as a map of the whole territory, religion on campus in three dimensions, social, communal, and spiritual. On behalf of this marvelous Marsh community, for whom Jesus is our beacon, not our boundary, first. In the very present, with increasing attention, our nation has recognized a pervasive malady within student life and culture, certainly not limited to any one college or city, a callous disregard for the safety of women. This is not a women's problem. This is a men's problem and a community problem. In this past year, appalling renditions of campus life have gradually brought about a raised consciousness, a phrase whose currency we owe to the women's movement a generation ago. Read again the March Atlantic article on fraternity life. Look once more, if you can endure it, at the New York Times early August account of assault in Geneva, New York at Hobart, William Smith. Peruse the various columns on acquisition and education excellence and sheep like that of William Derisowitz. Assess the attention last week to Harvard's administrative change and the objections of their law school faculty. Sift through carefully the daily details of what young adults recount of their experience. A young friend this week related the chilling experience of being chased for blocks in the early evening on a well-lit street through no fault of her own. One student at Columbia now carries, cross-like, day by day from class to class, the mattress on which assault occurred some months ago. Groups of students readily volunteered to help. No campus across this land is free from the responsibility and the opportunity of facing and addressing, in real time, the issue of safety on campus. Unlike many other problems, tornadoes, cancer, mortality. These are problems that need not occur and have both consequences and cures. One reads that 20% of college women are harassed, attacked, or assaulted during their student years. That is going to change. That has to change, and that will change if only because those funding college tuition payments over time will make sure that it does change. The voice of religious life has everything to offer to this dilemma. Where there are still religious voices to be heard on campus, where that is there are still pulpits on campus, a mere fraction of the number a generation ago, a tiny fraction of that two generations ago, religion has been consistently faithfully and aggressively engaged with issues of safety on campus in concert with many other good people, good offices, good leaders across good campuses like this one. 
In Marsh Chapel, while we have breath, we will continue to provide sacred space that is safe, that is a safe place. Come Sunday, in worship, wherein we remember that life is lived before God and that our experience rests in the presence of ultimate reality. And weekdays, by employing and deploying sexual and other minorities in ministry and for ministry, the Inner Strength Gospel Choir, our LGBTQ work, and all manner of life-affirming and spiritually enriching groups, events, and programs. Spend a Friday evening with the Seventh-day Adventist student group, and you will feel and see this in action. Learning, yes, but also virtue and piety. Knowing, yes, but also doing and being. Mind, yes, but also heart and soul. A few years ago, I met with a group of theologians at Yale. At dinner, a highly accomplished professor approached, asking, I pick up that you work with religious groups. What can you tell me about intervarsity? His question carried a nervous apprehension. I replied that they were a campus group, more conservative than I and my tradition, but reliable and experienced. Why do you ask? I responded. Well, he said, my daughter goes to that group here at Yale. She was raised a Presbyterian. I asked why she chose InterVarsity. Did she like the Bible study, the time, the leader? Oh no, he answered. I think she was just looking for a group her age who were not drinking every single night. At Marsh Chapel, while we have breath, we will continue to uphold a vision of a beloved community among women and men on campus. A beloved community and nothing short of it. A while ago, someone asked why religious leaders on campus weren't saying more about campus safety. Did somebody ever ask you a question at just the wrong time? It took most of what little self-control I had not to blurt, blurt out, where have you been? Are you interested in these things? Really? Then why aren't you with us in church on Sunday? If you were, you'd see, hear, and know just how steadily we have done so. If you're really interested in a beloved community of women and men on campus, then I expect you to be in church on Sunday morning. Put your body where your mouth is. Come to Marsh Chapel. Here is a community of faith living weekly in the shadow of a monument to Martin Luther King. His dream, yes, is greatly deferred, we confess. But his dream lives, we affirm. The dream of a beloved community, including such a community among women and men on campus. Here at Marsh Chapel, you might be greeted by an African-American woman from Atlanta, like one of our former ushers, Jennifer Williams, now researching her PhD dissertation in urban planning at the University of Michigan with a winter in South Africa. Here you might be greeted by an Asian man like Madia Wang, one of our former ushers, now in business in Toronto, who was baptized by immersion on Easter Eve on the side lawn here last spring. Here you might be greeted by Dominic Cheng, one of our former ushers, a BU graduate who taught for a year in Taiwan 
and who has now returned this fall for a master's degree in education and is an usher again, an usher both former and current. Go ushers. Here you might find a friend like mine who guided me to a column by Emma Green in this month's Atlantic. Americans born after 1980 are less likely to identify with a religion, but religious people report more satisfaction with their love lives. Church service attendance protects healthy people against death. College grads born in the 1970s are more likely than non-grads of the same age to identify with a particular faith. Maybe there's something about contemporary campus life that makes people more, not less likely, to gravitate toward traditional institutions. Or maybe college grads have simply learned that religion is pretty good for you. That is, here you may catch a glimpse of what love can be, neighbor to neighbor, what loving kindness, honor, care, and even chivalry can be. <clears throat> we still teach Shakespeare at Boston University. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. In sociology, that is, Jesus is our beacon, not our boundary. Second, <coughs> religion on campus has an opportunity with, re with regard to religion off campus, an ecclesiological rather than a sociological responsibility, one of church rather than college. <coughs> that is, the voices of religion on campus can provide a hopefully humble but also historically nuanced counterbalance to contemporary church vision and leadership. For instance, as only one example, and turning to our own situation and heritage here at Marsh Chapel, there has been an historic creative tension between the preaching leadership and the administrative management of the Methodist Church, dating back 200 years to Peter Cartwright and his tangles with various presiding elders. Both are important, spirit and structure. Our ministry at Marsh this year emphasizes spirit, but structure has its role, importance, and place. Today, however, with most of the preachers in many Methodist conferences now lacking full education and so lacking ordination with consequent guaranteed appointment, the balance of power has shifted dramatically in the last two decades. Those whose primary weekly commitment is to interpreting the scripture are outweighed by those whose primary annual commitment is to upholding the discipline. The gospel trumpeted in scripture and tradition, the gospel of freedom, grace, and love for all, including especially those in minority, including sexual minorities, is overshadowed by the rules and constraints revoted every four years. University pulpits, the few that remain, bear a significant responsibility to model dimensions of humility, integrity, and courage, along with those few healthy, strong churches whose northeastern voices you heard here a summer ago from Boston, New York, Rochester, and Washington. As Lou Martin said, we are free to set heaven a little higher. So we need to take responsibility to lead along with these other stable pulpits. 
We have the advantage here of resources in interpretation, memory, thought, and reflection that can be of some use in this particular time. One illustration. Ministry is now denied to gay people in Methodism. Ordination, that is. But think about this for a moment on a Sunday in a university chapel. We have spent more than a generation relearning that ministry, does, ministry belongs not to the ordained alone, but to the baptized. Entrance into ministry does not begin with the bishop laying on hands at ordination. Entrance into ministry begins with the pastor laying on hands in baptism. 99% of ministry is conferred in the sacrament of baptism, 1% in the sacramental rite of ordination. Those who really would consistently exclude gay women and men from ministry should never have allowed the church to baptize, confirm, or commune gay people. That would have been more fully effective and consistent bigotry, but in baptism, the barn door has been opened, and no amount of shutting it will ever pass us by. Gay people are baptized and therefore are already in ministry. It is a short way from denying orders to denying baptism. Christopher Morse, my theology professor and a Methodist minister from Virginia, told us once at dinner about a humorous baptismal moment. Forty years ago, you baptized every infant in the northern half of the county, no matter what county, always on Palm Sunday. 38 baptisms in a row, right down the aisle. And he moved down the line that year, seizing the children one at a time. What name shall be given this child? John, I baptize you. Mary, I baptize you. George, I baptize you. Penundras, a French couple just learning English, presented the child. So, Christopher, Penundras, I baptize. A distraught father came up later to show Christopher the pin on the dress on which the name had been clearly written, not Penundras, pin on dress. We are not so hasty in baptism now. We have spent more than a generation, a good deal of time, studying prevenient, justifying, sanctifying grace of God in baptism. All the baptized are all in ministry, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, gay or straight. But it is our religious opportunity on campus freely and safely to think about these things with humility, but also with honesty. Another illustration. The rules in Methodism explicitly state that the pastor alone is to decide whose marriage will be solemnized in accordance with the laws of the state and the rules of the church. No local committee decides, no vote of session, no poll of the community or neighborhood, no family habit of patriarchal auction of a daughter to an opposing family, no. The couple and the pastor together decide. There is an accrued wisdom in this, the leaving of these lasting decisions to those in the local situations in the context in which they are to be lived out. Would you want a general conference every four years voting on a list of those to be married in Boston, those to be allowed to be married in Los Angeles, those type, types of people fit for matrimony in Wisconsin? Surely not. That is why the primary directive in the discipline leaves such to, to the discretion of the pastor. 
the United Methodist Book of Discipline, I'm about to quote a paragraph. Paragraph 340, subpoint 2, subpoint A, subpoint 3, subpoint A, I quote. To perform the marriage ceremony after due counsel with the par parties involved and in accordance with the laws of the state and the rules of the Methodist Church, the decision to perform the ceremony shall be the right and responsibility of the pastor. So, do we mean it? Or are we going to enforce, as one general superintendent in the book, Finding Our Way, unfortunately put it, enforce the discipline? Here the burden of responsibility is clearly, unequivocally placed upon the pastor whose right and responsibility it is to decide to marry a couple. There is no shading here, no hem or haw, the pastor decides after due counsel, pastoral care, in accordance with state law and church rules. No comment here is offered to the situation when state law and church rules, both of which are to be upheld, are different. State law 50 years ago to prohibit interracial marriage was widely ignored by Methodist clergy north and south who performed interracial marriages in states prohibiting such. Not to marry a gay couple is now to contradict the laws in 30 plus states who protect the right of gay people to marry. Rightly, the Book of Discipline leaves these difficult pastoral decisions in the hands of the minister. The decision to perform the ceremony shall be the right and the responsibility of the pastor not the general conference, not the general superintendent, not the district superintendent, not the charge conference, the pastor. And that is as it should be, thanks be to God. In ecclesiology, Jesus is our beacon, not our boundary. Third, religion on campus has a theological chance, a spiritual opening, the opportunity and freedom to dream, both regarding creation and regarding redemption. That is, the remaining significant campus pulpits, Marsh, Harvard, Duke, and just a few others, have the spiritual opportunity to challenge and engage thought forms in college and culture, including some forms of popular atheism and agnosticism, and introduce them, for example, to some religious forms of atheism and agnosticism. Leslie Weatherhead did this already 60 years ago with sermons collected as the Christian agnostic. Edward O. Wilson this fall wrote, true enough, faith is the one thing that makes otherwise good people do bad things. But the contrary is true as well. Love is the one thing that makes otherwise bad people do good things. The asperity with which the Holy Scripture summarizes creation is only matched by the asperity which the creeds of the church use to summarize creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, period. Scripture and creed say what reason and experience know. We have the brute fact of the brute creation, period. 
The rest of the Holy Scripture, all 65.9 other books, and the rest of the Creed, the long second paragraph and the shorter third, go quickly on from there. The love of God comes accompanied by faith and hope. Creation is the occasion of love, but does not itself occasion love. Does not occasion faith in love and does not occasion a hope for a loving future. God is love is more about the second person of the Trinity, the Christ of God, than about the first person of the Trinity, the creation of God. More fairest Lord Jesus than for the beauty of the earth. Love is in the second person of the Trinity. When we were invited to come to Marsh Chapel, I looked back on the great dreamers, the voices, influential and real, that had formed me. My father-in-law, who built a Wesley Foundation from the ground up in the 1960s in Oswego, New York. My dad, who served a college town church and helped create an ecumenical form of college ministry in the East, UMHE, United Ministries in Higher Education, in the same decade. My mother-in-law and mother, who in those years hosted and graced endless fellowship meals for nervous pre-seminarians, bruised freedom riders, troubled conscientious objectors, chastened veterans, and their various boyfriends and girlfriends. Our friend, the chaplain at Colgate, Robert Smith, whose presence and courage in, in and through hard times were sustained by Motive magazine. William Sloan Coffin, chaplain at Williams and then at Yale before becoming our pastor at Riverside Church in New York City in the 1970s. Coffin's preaching ministry in New York and at Columbia and through Union continues to be a large part of my model for work here at Marsh in Boston and at Boston University and through the School of Theology. Peter Gomes, both colleague and mentor, who succeeded at Harvard, as he famously said, by being ubiquitous. I am everywhere, where I'm invited and where I'm not invited. I am ubiquitous. The years and losses have mounted up in equal measure for religion on campus. There are but, there are but one for every 20 pulpits now on campus that there were 50 years ago. But we are here. You are here, and where there is life, there is hope. All of these fine ministers, for all their substantial theological differences, when it came to spiritual theology, shared a freedom to dream. In fact, far beyond their own limited spheres, they kept dreams alive in decades of confusion and kept preaching alive in years when across the land there was, in Amos's fine phrase, a famine of the word. They read Paul Tillich and made his depth available to others. And we can do the same in our time here with the great theological minds of our time here, some of whom are close at hand. The Nobel laureate Patrick Modiano said recently, I've always felt like I've been writing the same book for the past 45 years. And I must say, I felt the same preaching or trying to preach the same sermon for the past 45 years. With you, I preach the gospel of freedom, grace, and love. 
I preach love, God's love, love is God, all of us are better when we're loved, love divine, all love's excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Love God and love your neighbor. That's in the Bible. We heard it earlier this morning. Religion on campus can give future leaders, secular and religious, a sense of possibility, a sense of imagination, breadth and freedom in the theopoetics of God talk. Those who attend worship at Marsh Chapel over four years, as undergraduates that is, will have also virtually acquired much of the vocabulary and content of the first year of graduate study in theology. Biblical, historical, philosophical, and practical. At no extra charge, what a bargain. We shall give Martin Luther King the last word. Love, agape, he wrote, is more than romantic love. Agape is more than friendship. Agape is understanding, creative, redemptive, goodwill to all people. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. When one rises to love on this level, he loves men not because he likes them, not because their ways appeal to him, but he loves every man because God loves him. And he rises to the point of loving the person who does an evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. I think that is what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. I'm very happy that he didn't say, like your enemies, because it's pretty difficult to like some people. Like is sentimental, and it's pretty difficult to like someone bombing your home. It's pretty difficult to like someone threatening your children. It's pretty difficult to like congressmen who spend all of their time trying to defeat civil rights. But Jesus says, love them, and love is greater than like. So friends, this morning, here is your question. If you are a student, your question is, where are you at 10 minutes after 11 on Sunday morning? If you are faculty, you have that question, plus a second. Where are you on weekends when pedagogy gives way to life? If you are an administrator, you have both former questions, plus a third. Have you planned in finance and leadership for the growth of a beloved community. And if a community member, all three of these are your questions, plus this one, are you with us? We need you. We don't have a dollar, a minute, or a person to spare. In theology, as in sociology and ecclesiology, Jesus is our beacon, not our boundary. Of him we just did sing. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills the breast, but sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. Jesus, our only joy be thou, as thou our prize wilt be. Jesus, be thou our glory now and through eternity. Amen. Let us join together as a community of prayer 
please feel welcome to come kneel at the altar rail, stand or sit in whatever posture of prayer is most comfortable to you as the choir leads us in our call to prayer. Gentle God, may we know and sense you in the world around us. May we recognize you in the very fabric of our universe. When you call us forward to reform, adapt, and grow, may we be eager and ready listeners. When you lead us into pathways of peace and reconciliation, May we tread those pathways with compassion. When you gather us into beloved community, may we share our concerns and our joys authentically with one another. When you offer us redemption and grace, may we accept it with an open heart. When the Spirit alights a flame within us, May we kindle that light with love and gratitude. Creator God, you are both mother and father to us, both our strength and shield. Let us pray together now the prayer your Son has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
Good morning and welcome once again to Marsh Chapel. Know that whoever you are, wherever you come from, you are welcome here. I invite those in the chapel nave to get to know the folks seated around you by finding the red pad near the center aisle, add your name to it, pass it along the pew, then pass it back to the center aisle. Learn a new name today and greet the neighbor next to you by name. Two, three brief announcements. Students are invited for bagels and coffee next Sunday, November 2nd at 9.45 to the Dean's residence with Jan Hill as host. Come eat and enjoy making new friends. For more information, contact the chapel office at chapel at bu.edu. This Friday, October 31st at 8 p.m. and Sunday, November 2nd at 3 p.m., Marsh Chapel's ensemble and residence, Lorelei, will have their first concerts of the season here in the nave. Today is also the last week to apply to be a Thanksgiving homestay host. See Reverend Brittany Longsdorf for more information if you are interested. Beloved, we depend upon your prayerful and material support for the life and work of Marsh Chapel. From the music of Wachner and Lorelei voice to undergraduates in an internship exploring religious leadership, vocation, to the sharing of the gospel of freedom, grace, and love throughout New England and around the globe, volume, our ministry grows and thrives with your support. As we prepare to receive the morning offering, we, are, we especially encourage our radio and internet listeners to take a moment to go to the Marsh Chapel website, bu.edu chapel, click on the giving link and make a generous contribution to support our ministry. You may also simply want to send a check to Marsh Chapel, 735 Commonwealth Avenue. Your tithes and gifts will strengthen our Marsh Chapel ministry, a heart in the heart of the city, and a service in the service of the city.
God of abundance, you have poured out a large measure of earthly blessings for us. Teach us to set our hearts on you and not these material blessings, and grant us the wisdom to use your blessings to your glory and to the service of humankind. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. the sun shall warm and bright on you, your darkest night a star shine through, your dullest morn a radiance brew, and when dusk comes God's hand to you, the blessing of God Almighty, creator, redeemer, and sustainer be and abide with each one of us now and always. Amen. 